Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there. It's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1986, and Feed Me, Earwolf, the movie Little Shop of Horrors. Everyone and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson, and I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the best films of all time. And when we do, we are sending them up to space. We are making the list. We are checking it twice, and we are listening to you, the people who listen to our show. What should we be talking about? What are the films that represent our culture? Not just. America, but the world. And each week, we're trying to get closer. Right now, we are winding down our first, I should say, musical series. We did a very short musical series just to kind of dip our toes in. It's been so much fun. And we're ending with Little Shop of Horrors. But uh, what a fun ride this has been. I mean, all of these films have been pure enjoyment to me. They really have. I mean, this is this is definitely a series where we put our toe in and it just made me realize how big the ocean is and how much we're leaving out and how much it pains me to move on from the musical. But before we do, I mean, Little Shop of Horrors, to me, this was a surprise. This was like the number one most requested thing I saw this whole time. I knew this movie was loved. I knew this movie is lovable. I did not know that it had the groundswell of passion I saw, I saw where it was just constantly you got to do little shop you can't you can't get through your first musical series if you have not done little shop i will feed you to my plants if you do not do little shop of horrors i mean this the people have spoken they have sung they have belted out their desire and it was all for little shop of horrors i'm so excited to talk about this film because this film holds a special place in my heart and it's for many different reasons but primarily when i was a kid it felt like this was a movie where all my favorite comedians were in one spot. Rick Moranis, Steve Martin, John Candy, Bill Murray. At that point, I'm going to admit it, Jim Belushi, uh, Christopher Guest. Uh, they were all in this film and 
it was, I, I just remember fast forwarding to the Steve Martin parts because I wanted to be a Steve Martin completist. And that's really how I remember the film. So going back and watching it this time was really fun because I felt like I actually saw the whole movie, not just the highlight reel of like Bill Murray in the dentist chair, which was again, where I fast forwarded every time I got this in the, in the uh, VHS player, not even DVD VHS people. Well, Amy, why don't you feed me? Did I do it twice? I should do it twice, right? It doesn't get old. It doesn't. Unspool it. (laughs) The year is 1986. The internet message across access protocol, or IMAP, is designed, paving the way for email as we know it. Mad cow disease brings about changes in farming practices in the UK. The Challenger space shuttle disintegrates 73 seconds after launching, killing all seven astronauts on board. The Chernobyl nuclear power station disaster causes the release of radioactive material across much of Europe. And the popular movies include Hoosiers, which are done on the show, Platoon, also done on the show, Aliens, done on the show, and today's film, Little Shop of Horrors. Amy, who's in it? Who made it? Tell me all the details. Little Shop of Horrors. It is based on a 1960 Roger Corman movie about a poor florist shop worker named Seymour who discovers a bizarre plant that gives him money and it gives him the confidence to pursue his co-worker, Audrey, the girl of his dreams, if he feeds the plant human flesh. Uh, you know, this original Corman, Little Shop of Horrors, was famously shot in two days. And Corman was like, this movie's a nothing. I'm not even going to bother copywriting it, which is how this movie, two decades later, gets transformed into an off-off Broadway show written by the great lyricist Howard Ashman and songwriter Alan Menken. Um, Ashman and Menken's musical Off Off Broadway was such a success that it went from Off Off Broadway to Off Broadway to a movie to finally actual Broadway. But we are here, of course, to talk about the movie, which Howard Ashman also wrote. He wrote the script and the film was directed by longtime Muppeteer Frank Oz, finally going out on his own after 30 years alongside Jim Henson. So this movie, when it starts to come together, I mean, it's like quirky, it's cool, off-off-Broadway, man, off-Broadway, man. And then when they get Rick Moranis of Ghostbusters to sign on, who was like the pick of David Geffen, who produced it, uh, all of Rick Moranis' buddies were like, I totally have to cameo in your movie, dude. Of course, the great hit list that Paul uh, already listed off that I'm just going to say again to bring a tear to his eye, John Candy, Bill Murray, Christopher Guest, James Belushi, your favorite Belushi, and of course, Steve Martin. Um, The other star here in Little Shop of Horrors is Ellen Green. She plays Audrey. She originated the role of Audrey on Broadway. And the voice of Audrey, too, is by Levi Stubbs of The Four Tops, who he gets first billing as soon as the movie is over. He's like the first name on screen, which he deserves. I think he deserves even more credit than that. He is incredible as Audrey, too. Take a listen. You see, sir, if you were to put a, a strange and interesting plant like this here in, in the window, then then maybe... Maybe what? Maybe what? Do you have any idea how ridiculous you sound? Just because you put a strange and interesting plant in the window, people don't suddenly... Excuse me. I couldn't help noticing that strange and interesting plant. What is it? An Audrey, too. I've never seen anything like it before. No one has. So Little Shop of Horrors opened in theaters on December 19th, 1986, making it a Christmas movie. Congratulations. Uh, It has since become a, a movie that is a staple of karaoke bars. I would say that it is even more popular in karaoke bars than the number one song on the charts that weekend. A song that I would argue is just as iconic, but is more of a dance song than a singing song. I am talking, of course, about the Bengals' Walk Like an Egyptian. On the 
By the way, if you watch the video for Walk Like an Egyptian today, most of the video is a concert film, but when it's not a concert film, it cuts to just like ordinary people of New York, like taxi cab drivers, women in that New York thing of wearing like a suit jacket, but also tennis shoes as they go to work, just doing the walk like an Egyptian dance on the streets of New York, which I think is beautiful synergy for this film. I mean, isn't that what we want from our world to have just the people of the streets singing and dancing together? That is what a musical can do in our lives. Yeah, I love that idea. I feel like in the 80s, there was this constant, like, we're out in the street, and then all of a sudden, people are going to start dancing. It was bringing the musical into music videos. Like, here's a real tough guy, here's a businessman, but then they're joined together by their love of Bobby Brown, and they start dancing. You know, it's like it was just a very, like, a cliche thing that you don't see that much anymore, but, like, watching that uh, kind of takes me back. <laughs> you know, that's beautiful, though. I mean, that is the heart of, I think, what we've been talking about this at this series. What is the one thing that can stir you, construction man on the street, and you, secretary, rushing to your job to dance? And is it Bobby Brown? If it's Bobby Brown, you know, good for you. Good for you. Bobby Brown, early Bobby Brown, before we knew of all the the bigger issues. That's when it was located, like Bobby Brown. Um, Amy, this is an interesting film. Because it was not a hit when it came out. You said it came out as like a Christmas film, but it wasn't intended to be a Christmas film. It was intended to be a summer blockbuster, a giant summer blockbuster. They spent a ton of money on this film. They shot this on the biggest stage, the 007 stage in uh, Pinewood, you know, right next to Aliens. This was going to be a hit and disastrous, disastrous test screenings forever change this movie. Some for the better, some for the worse. Um, But this film, like Seymour, has continued to grow and thrive and has now become, like you said in the beginning, a huge cult classic. A movie that, even though we've left so much on the table in the musical department, we felt like we had to do this one because it's so beloved. Yeah. I mean, this is actually, I think, one of my favorite musicals that we've done this series, just to like put the title in on YouTube, because it is done by, I think, every high school that's ever been created. I think people create high schools just so they can do a stage reading (laughs) of like Little Shop of Horrors, which is impressive, given that this is a musical that also lives and dies by, can you make a fake plant that sings? And by the way, this is also at a time where there are no special effects. I mean, there are special effects. Obviously, James Cameron is shooting aliens next door, but... This movie has no SFX. This is puppets. It's giant puppets. I do feel a little bit of connection to Audrey because in Black Monday, my character dresses up as Audrey too. um, And I got to wear that plant suit for whatever it was, like 10 days. Uh, It was very heavy, very uncomfortable. But it was a great, uh, it's such a great character and a character that has no eyes like in in the world that we live in now don't you believe that audrey too would have eyes like i feel like we are desperate to put eyes on every creature and every monster and this is something that retains its slimy plant-like nature and if any plants are out there i don't want to offend you uh but also feels like this other thing It, it really is a beautiful creature design and that's why you know uh the creature design is listed right at the top of this movie. It's like you can't, there's no movie without this creature. You know, I just realized we are beginning and ending our whole musical series with musicals 
where one of the major singers doesn't have eyeballs. That was like the other interesting oh, thing wow, about Jack yeah. Skellington too. Like he was, how weird it was to have a character whose eyes were just giant black pits of nothingness. And, and Audrey, I mean, I don't know if this movie would work if this wasn't directed by like King God Muppeteer Man, right? The guy who yeah. knows how to make a puppet look real. The guy who has all of the people that he can call in 55 people to like, animate the giant puppet at the end, which if, if you see videos of how like the biggest puppet where like the tentacles are waving everywhere, how it was operated, it kind of looks like people are on exercise bikes. You know, they're holding little sticks and kind of huffing back and forth like they're pedaling and making this uh, monster oh, wow. just move. I mean, let's just even let Rick Moranis talk about how the lips worked because it's crazy. This is him on the Nerdist podcast back in the day with Jonah Ray and Chris Hardwick were, I can't remember the number of puppeteers, but there were four cables to the upper lip and four cables to the bottom lip. And all of the scenes of the plant and everything of the plant with me in it are shot at 16 frames per second. So that, because they could not form the words fast enough. Oh, wow. So it was all, the music, the lyrics were, the soundtrack was harmonized up so you could hear it properly and the whole thing was shot slowly and we just moved slowly and then they, when they ran it back it was up to speed. But that would not be done like that. You would just do all the lip movements CGI now. Yeah. And I think the reason why this Muppet works so much, and I think we should give a shout out to it, is, you know, Jim Henson alum, Marty Robinson, created this original Audrey 2. Um, and you know, this is, you know, truly another performer in the film. I think we have to give it up. I, the, the same way we talk about uh, Stan Winston, I think we have to talk about Martin Robinson here because he really did do something amazing. And Brian Henson actually was one of the original puppeteers of Audrey 2 in this film, too. So interesting connection. Even though it was not a Muppet production, it had a lot of Muppet DNA. <laughs> Muppet DNA. <laughs> I mean, what they do that I think is so is so great and how Audrey 2 is designed is like, you know, Audrey is like wet and kind of repulsive. You know, there's a lot of like colors in her tongue. There's a lot of like shadings, like pinks and greens and kind of reptilian patterns on the outside of, of Audrey too's, what do you call it? A bud? A bud? Yeah. Is that what Audrey's I mean, head is a bud? Like, it's kind of like a Venus flytrap with a, yeah, like a, like a capsule, like a capsule, yeah, yeah head. Yeah, but it's so expressive and repulsive at the same time. I mean, Frank Oz is just a guy who absolutely knew, like, you know, you tilt the head this way a little bit. It looks curious. You move the head back. It looks repulsive. It looks like repulsed by you. It looks frustrated. And as a director, what I think is so smart is he's like making you identify just a little bit with Audrey from the very beginning. Our first shot of Audrey is actually like a POV shot of being inside Audrey, like tiny Audrey, mm -hmm. as Rick Moranis is carrying her upstairs from the from the basement to like look it up, up, look up at all the humans. And now I'm like using the name her for Audrey when I was going down this whole rabbit hole while watching it of being like, yeah, do you ever have this theory about like how we name pets and how we are possibly naming our pets wrong? No, walk okay. me through this. So I came up with this theory, you know, well, when I had like my last cat, Wolf, um, where I was like, Wolf is such a tough name. And then I started to wonder once, like, I act like my cat is such a tough bruiser, but is that because I put this tough name on top of him? Like he had nothing to do mm. with it. If I had named my cat like Mittens or Sugar Plum, would I think of my cat as a more gentle person? Like in the act of naming my cat, I have put a personality upon him that might not actually like fit my cat at all, you know? Uh, it, look, it, I have a big theory on this with children as well, because you're forced to name your child 
immediately. Like what you have to do is you give birth, you give the name, it's on the certificate, and then you're moving forward. And you have no time to truly be with the child of any real, you know, merit. Not that at any given point in the beginning, you're going to get that much personality, but it is a very, I felt it a lot the first time we had a kid because I was like, oh no, I'm, I, I am doing something so permanent and I barely even know you and, and met you. And it's, you're right. You, you do create something. And, and we had a lot of talks about what's a name that has a little bit of movement, but not too much movement to let them be who they want to be. Exactly. And so the idea here that like Seymour names his plant Audrey too, because he's in love with like a lovely, sweet lady named Audrey, like a delicate sort of person that he adores. He puts just like the wrong name on this plant. But I think naming the plant after a girl that he likes keeps him from realizing what a mean, mean plant he has. I think if he had named the plant like Snappy from the beginning, he would know that it was, he would know not to trust it as much. I think he did himself a disservice. Well, there's no way he would have known. I mean, this is a plant that has come down from outer space. It is lying in wait. This plant wants to be called Audrey. Like, yeah. because he is manipulating him. He's manipulating him. There was no way for him to know. And the fact that it spoke is pretty, uh, I mean, you know, who would have guessed that? <laughs> no, I'm not blaming him for not knowing. I just think it's an, ex- an interesting example of how you can layer your preconceptions on something and it makes you discover the truth much slower. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. You know, this entire musical is owed, like you said, to this Roger Corman film that was just, you know, if you know anything about Roger Corman, very fly-by-night, you know, creature feature director. Um, And what I think is so interesting about what this movie does is it really becomes like a Greek tragedy, right? This is... This is... We just did Chicago, which is a movie where, you know, someone's dreams not only wrecks their life, but some of the people around them. Their also lives true are for Nightmare Before Christmas. True. And here is probably the most pared down version of that. I mean, so much so that there is a Greek chorus in this film. Yeah. Yeah. This Greek chorus played by teenagers, played by like Tishina Arnold, Michelle Weeks and Tisha Campbell. Tisha Campbell getting like her big movie debut here. And they're named after, you know, these kind of 60s doo-wop groups of the era. You know, one's Crystal, one's Ronette, one's Chiffon. And they are just marvelous, honestly. Oh, I love them. I love them so much. And and it sets a tone for this entire film. Like what we're watching, and this is really what I wanted to get into with you. This is, in many ways, just a straight up, Broadway musical on film. Do you agree with that? Because I feel like there is the way it's staged, the way it looks, the sets, the design. It is the least cinematic 
of all the ones that we have done. And I think it's done intentionally. And I think here it works fantastically. Oh, I completely disagree. I think this is one of the more cinematic ones we've done on this series. Wow. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, okay, well, talk me through it. Okay. I mean, I just think that like Frank Oz's camera placement here is just so awesome. You mm-hmm. know, not not even just the way that like he does like kind of the Audrey POV sort of views, the way he uses movies to do things you can only do in movies to add to like the surreality of what's happening on screen. I mean, I'm thinking about just like little details, you know, Steve Martin, you know, launching into view on a motorcycle and then managing to like dead stop exactly where the motorcycle lands. You know, that's something you could never do live on a stage, but he like does it here in the movie version of it. And it makes you just know that you're living in a heightened world. So I'll agree that you're, this is perhaps the movie that most leans into the artificiality of a musical construction. But I think the actual look of the film, the camera angles, the way like there's, you know, I love the number where like, Audrey is singing and you have the chorus kind of walking in front of Audrey, her like the feet, then the hands kind of sticking out as they're like, as he's like, feed me. And then the insert of the hand shot, like the close-ups, the choices that Frank Oz makes and what he shows you, I think are are brilliant. But yes, the tone, the artificiality of like you are entering a false world that a Broadway musical can do really well. This, I think, nails that. Well, here's what I'll say. And it's not a ding. I don't think this is like, oh, I don't think this movie is well-directed. I do think it's well-directed. I was looking at the staging of it. Like, Mr. Mushnick, at one point, walks to the front of the stage to do his monologue about the store of failing, right? And there are a lot of things in this film that Frank Oz does that you could do more cinematically, but he stages it more theatrically. And I think it works. For example... Uh, the scene where they're waiting and no one's coming into the store where they just kind of have these like blackout moments and they just keep on switching seats, right? Everything is pretty much on sound stages. Nothing is in the real world. So even when Steve Martin's on the motorcycle, the scene before the one you spoke about, he's not moving on the motorcycle. It's just him almost Annette style, uh, just, you know, sitting on the front of the motorcycle. I think there's a lot of scenes like that. And not to say that there aren't scenes where you see inside the mouth, but a lot of stuff is performed in a way that is a little, yes, artificiality of it all. But I think what I really like about it was by embracing the theatricality of it, by embracing the performing elements of it. It reminded me a little bit of the producers. It reminded me um, a lot of just seeing a Broadway show and I loved it, but it also amped it up. It walked, I guess what I'm saying is it walked between two worlds and sometimes I'll rail on something and go, well, it's too, now it's too realized and it doesn't feel like the musical and I can't buy into it. Or other times I'll feel like now it's too much just what I saw on stage. Like I need something more. And I feel like he does this really interesting thing where he keeps the audience in a point of view, like even with the chorus, like I guess the original idea was he wanted them to be in a spotlight, but the spotlight would bleed over into the other actor, so it wouldn't really work. So there are really interesting things with the chorus where they don't get wet when it rains or, you know, they're in the background of every scene. Like the way that they are, it just reminded me of a Broadway show, the staging of it, the look of it, uh, the way the sets were designed are more like a, a Broadway theater set than they are 
1986 Hollywood film, blockbuster film. And I believe that's the reason why this movie tested so poorly, too. I mean, like, yeah, it was all built on a soundstage. So it does have that, like, kind of insular soundstage. But even the look. But yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I think he's aware of it enough that he's, like, making fun of it, too. Like, I think he's being really deliberate in it. I mean, yes. the, you're, you're talking about, like, how Mr. Mushnick, like, comes up and kind of does his, like, aside mumbling to the camera. There's a later point where Rick Moranis does the same thing where he's like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with all of this? And it gets interrupted because um, Audrey walks in. And she's like, who are you even talking to? Right. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I never should have started, but I did. And now if I don't feed it, it'll die. And I'll lose her. I'll lose everything. Who are you talking to? Nobody. So so I think at those moments, he's saying, like, we have been participating in this, like, shared fantasy of artificiality about this. And I'm going to remind you that it's a joke, but I don't I don't know if he has anything to say. He's just sort of like popping out and kind of seeing like, look, we did it. We're all in this like musical world together where we think this guy's acting sort of normally based on the rules that we have put up. I guess to my point. It is the difference between the producers that Gene Wilder did and the producers that uh, Matthew Broderick did, right? There is an element of a down and dirty. They could have, Munchnik's flower shop could look completely different. This looks like a Broadway set versus a movie set. And I don't think that that's a bad thing at all. I think that the premise is so big that by grounding it in this world, like this Broadway world, you know, not going outside for street scenes, not, you know, showing people in cars that are moving, keeping the sets pretty much, you know, very basic. Maybe there's five or six sets in the entire film, you know, with the exception of certain things. Um, I feel like it was a really genius choice because the more that you make it real, the more scary it gets. And it's not scary, it's fun. And yes, they did try to do some stuff, I think, that they cut out in the Bill Murray scene, especially, I think that was supposed to be an incredibly bloody scene and people got really freaked out, so they pulled back the blood from that. Uh, The ending, which we should get into in a little bit, but I won't, I think that's a separate conversation, just uh, was also a little bit darker. I just think that he kept it playful. And I think it's a hard line to walk to have the playfulness of a musical in a cinematic production. And I've never really seen it done as well as this. And that's really what I think I'm getting at is like, not that it was a bad thing, but he merged these two worlds very organically, used the theatrical when he needed it, used the cinematic when he needed it. And it actually created something that felt organic and not, I'm trying to make this Broadway musical a movie, or I'm trying to make this movie just represent what I saw on stage. He didn't go too big. He didn't cats it. You know what I mean? No, but right. Also, yeah. he stayed true to the weirdness because, like, none of these characters, not even Seymour, would would fit right in a normal set. Like, if you were like looking at this, like, oh, I'm in a normal flower shop. Everything looks like a normal flower shop. This is what a normal flower shop looks like. And you just have, you know, Rick Moranis as Seymour freaking out the way that he does. He would seem too big. He would make the whole thing seem laughable. It's well, kind of like a plant. Like, if a plant grows to fit its container, I think the container that Frank Oz put this in is big enough to hold them, to hold everybody together. Like the only time, actually there's only like one moment where I feel like the characters on the screen actually seem more or less sort of like ordinary people. And it's really, 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 really brief. It's right at the beginning when 
the chorus we've already seen kind of like dancing and sashaying in those like blue dresses with the kind of almost like spiky wingy things on the on the breasts where I think they're kind of this perfect synergy of like 1980s Madonna mesh gloves but 1960s sort of silhouette but then the poofy part of the skirt the kind of like bubble part of the bottom of the skirt is like 80s it's such a good like one foot in one world one foot in the other world kind of costuming that they do yeah but they are outside the shop and Mr. Mushnik starts yelling at them. And for this brief moment, they're back to being like ordinary teen girls. And in that little moment where they're ordinary teen girls, I think that's the most normal anybody acts in the whole movie. My life is a living hell. Hey, you, urchins! Shoo, shoo, shoo! Move, 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 go away! No loitering. Man, I wasn't loitering. Were you, Crystal? Not me, Ronette. Were you, Chiffon? You ought to be in school. Yeah, well, we on a split ship. Right. We went to school till fifth grade, then we split. So, how do you tend to better yourselves? Better ourselves? You heard what he said? Better ourselves? Mr. When you from Skid Row, ain't no such thing. I just wanted to point that out because, like, they, I think, are kind of the toggler's of the fantasy world. Do you know what mm, I mean? Yes. Like when they step into fantasy, the movie gets extra fantasy. And when they pop out of it, it's when the movie is at its most normal, you know, kind of like gritty New York for like a few seconds right before it goes into the downtown number. Yeah. But they're like our guides, like their outfits sort of guide us to how heightened we are. Are we like in base level? We live in Skid Row and it's really grim. Are we in like cartoonish skid row where everything's grim but interesting you know over the top kind of colorful yeah are we in cartoonish skid row that's like pretty there's like another layer of skid row on top of it like where he's talking about going to chinatown to go get the plant and like there the world the streets are like more colorful and he's more colorful and everything's even more colorful than it has been there's all these different like shifting layers of fantasy in here and like how heightened the reality is and they kind of navigate Right. And I think, you know, as you're talking about this and, and I'm kind of articulating it for the first time, it has the aesthetic of the Muppet show, the original Muppet show, not the ABC reboot, like the old school, like the color palette of it, the way that certain scenes and obviously for the Muppets, you had to be, you know, sets had to be built in a certain way, but actors are interacting with Muppets and the way the heightened reality of being behind the sets and the stages. I mean, I love the Muppets. The Muppets are the be- I, like I grew up loving the Muppets and there's something about the great Muppet caper uh, Muppets take Manhattan or even the first Muppet movie that all are like the Muppets in the real world. But the Muppet show was in its own world. Like we never really left that world. And this movie feels very much like it took that aesthetic to, I think, make the plant even look better than it would look, you know, because there's also a level of it would have to look better, right? It would, like, Alien is being shot across the stage. Alien is being shot for $18 million. This movie is being shot for 25 At this point, it's the biggest, most expensive movie Warner Brothers has ever done, right? And the Alien there looks more real than this, but I think it's this choice of, of making it uh, fun, but also then... Having some real stakes and going back to this idea of a Greek chorus like this or a Greek tragedy, like this is a person who in trying to better himself, not only destroys himself, but everyone around him, everyone around him is completely destroyed so much so that, and this is the big part that changes is that Audrey is killed. I mean, Audrey is killed. Audrey dies. Um, But 
people did not like that in the test screening. Um, and that is a really dark ending. And I guess when I think about uh, the film, it almost like lulls you into a complacency into like, oh, everything's going to be okay and it's all going to be fine. And then when the ending happens and she dies and then, you know, apparently the world is taken over at the end by all these plants, the, the aliens win all because this one guy wanted to get the attention of this girl that he liked. It's such a damning ending. And I think what happens here is because that ending is cut and we could talk about that, how that all goes down later, but uh, you actually create tonally a movie that just fits perfectly and doesn't have that twist at the end that I think would have made it like, oh, if you would have left at the end of that, you would feel feel terrible. Like you would you wouldn't have had those turns because like, a turn even at the end where, by the way, Jim Belushi was not even supposed to be in the movie. My, my favorite Belushi uh, it was supposed to be Paul Dooley, who wasn't available for the reshoots. Like you wouldn't have had that scene because I think that, you know, uh, our main character would have just continued to lose control. But here he kind of gains control, saves the day, and it works out kind of perfectly. So I almost feel like the aesthetic choice may have worked against what Frank Oz was trying to do in a general idea, but it still works. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. So let's like compare and contrast this maybe to something like Sweeney Todd, right? Because I think they're pretty, they're pretty good parallels. You know, like I'm a guy, I have a business, my business isn't doing well. I have a woman in my life that I want to make happy. I know if like people die, I can have what I want. Right. Right. I mean, that's the basic shared plot, shared plot that both of them have. But I think Sweeney Todd. Yes. I think it's. He is more deliberate about it. He's more. He really moves into the killing. He's like, I will kill. I will do the killing. I am making a choice to do the killing. Whereas I think the way that they play Rick Moranis here, here even more so than in the musicals, is like, oh, no, these people are accidentally dying around me. Or I'm just maybe not going to stop it. Like, I don't have the guts to kill Steve Martin. But if he kills himself, okay, I'll feed him to the monster. Okay, I'm not, I should kill my my landlord. I don't really well, want to I mean, kill my landlord. Well, I mean, he does shoot him. Well, I mean, he, he brings a gun, gun and he that, brings that the gun moment. out, but he like, but he doesn't do it. Like he right. brings the gun out and then he kind of backs down. What he does with like Mushnik is Mushnik is basically blackmailing him. Like all the people who died, die in this version of the movie because they're kind of bad people walking themselves into right. it too. Like they're all very much like, they're Like you terrible. don't feel guilty. You don't feel bad that anybody yeah. dies in this movie. They take because... away any of the guilt of that, right? Exactly. Yes. But then like, it's more just Rick Moran is standing there as he sees that Audrey is going to eat Mr. Mushnick and not stopping it. You know, that kind of like guilty implication. Whereas it's so, I think if you actually saw him like go out and be more Sweeney Todd about it, go out and like actually kill people and bring them back and like feed them to the beast, then you'd be like, maybe he deserves to die. But because it it dances around it and makes him less culpable. Then when you have a scene, like, have you seen the deleted scene where Audrey dies in the original version of this? You know what? I have not watched it. Uh, I know it's it's on YouTube, right? Because it was basically what happened was the original ending tested so poorly, and then they released a DVD with Frank Oz's commentary and this like animatic test footage, like a mix and match of certain things. It's a black and white version of it. Um, they found out, I guess Warner Brothers found out or David Geffen found out who produced the movie. He's like, wait, what the fuck are you doing? Like, why are you releasing this black and white version of it? We have a color version of it. Frank Oz is like, we don't have a color version of it. He's like, I'm recalling all the DVDs. They call back the DVDs and it's never been, there isn't a color version of it, but it's never been released. And they've talked about, oh, well, the next thing we'll re-release it. We'll, we'll put it on the next thing, but they've never really have done it. So 
the DVD is very hard to come by, but is it on YouTube, the the original? It is, it is, yeah. And I think when you hear this like death scene for Audrey that was in the original test screen, you can see why it tested like at 13%. Like people hated it because like if this guy hasn't done anything that active to get people killed, then like how brutal is here having Audrey say goodbye to him? When I die, which should be very shortly, give me to the plant so that you live and bring you all the wonderful things you deserve. You don't know what you're saying. But I do. It's one gift I can give you. And if I'm in the plant, then I'm part of the plant. So in a way, we'll always be together. And then, like, the ending, where it goes from there is, like, crazy. Basically, everything after this moment when, like, Audrey dies, and he does feed her to the to, to Audrey, too, is, like, the Audrey's propagating, taking over the world. I mean, the last song in the, in the cut version isn't even, like, a song. It's, like, it feels like five minutes of just visions of Audrey's destroying people, basically, like, the ending of Ghostbusters, but just with people screaming and kind of music in the background. But it's really just destruction. Here's like a taste of it, but imagine this going on for like, it feels like at least five minutes of just watching the entire world get destroyed. And by the way, just so you know, that's a $5 million ending. And the, the footage here, it, and I think, Again, to go back to this point, like of this creature destroying the the world around it, you need the world to look the way it looks because it is still a puppet, you know, ripping up streetcars. It looks a little bit like the way um, it's very modely. I mean, it looks very modely. It looks like it looks, you know, like a a worse version of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is like walking in, and there's moments of it where it looks a little bit fakey. But this is like. It looks like Audrey is attacking the set that was behind David Letterman's head on the Letterman show. Like, that's what it kind of looks like to me. You know, it's and it's big and it's violent. Um, and by the way, I was wrong about that. There is a color version, but I guess that was the part of the thing when they finally were able to re-release it. They had the color version. I think they might have colorized it. I'm not exactly okay. sure of like the origin of it, like put it in color so that it looked good. I mean, the artist who did this spent like a year making all of this stop, this stop motion, gigantic climax. Like, I mean, it ends. 23 minutes. It's huge. Yeah. It's giant. Yeah. Yeah. It ends with like. Audrey's several Audrey's on top of the Statue of Liberty, just like laughing in your face. And then it ends. Right. And so like they test this. I mean, you know, you know how test screenings work. Like when you go, you bring this movie and a bunch of people see it. They don't know necessarily maybe what they're going to see. They have to get, you know, like a 55 percent audience recommend, not even like Mm -hmm. love, but like recommend to get a release. And they got a 13, which is like crazy. And they thought maybe it's just this crowd. So they screened it again. And this time they got like a 16 and they're like, okay, we have to cut this, which they're really sad about. Because like the whole point of the original musical that like Ashman and Mencken wrote was that it ended really dark. It was kind of gimmicky, you know, like William Castle, that guy who would put like shock buzzers on your chairs and stuff. They ended it sort of like that. You know, the the film ends, Audrey 2's in charge, and then all of these vines like drop down from the ceiling into your lap and everybody screams. And so, yeah, that's like the ending it was famous for. They wanted Audrey to win. Audrey will lose. And I believe that's the twist, is that you get 
our minds have built this idea of what the ending will be. The good will conquer the day, right? And we aren't, you know, we're not really used to Greek tragedy. Obviously, we understand it as a trope, but those are tragic, obviously tragic stories, right? And, and that's something so fun and light. We're not expecting it to be a Greek tragedy. It's almost like a Trojan horse in a Greek tragedy because it's sort of like, I'm in, it's so fun. And then when Audrey, you know, basically, I mean, she kills herself, right? Because she she says like, I want you to have this. I want you to be successful. She sacrifices herself even in that moment too. Um, you know, that's that's... People don't want that. People wanted her to save her and get the girl and then live in that house in the end. So I don't know. I think it's a really like advanced move in a way, like to kind of create this false sense of security. And then, like we said, that ending where, you know, things fell down. You're like, oh my God. Like, you know, like it, you are, you're next. Like you fell victim to it. You, you are as much as the victim as everybody who would buy an Audrey 2. And that's why the Audrey 2s took over because he did make that deal with uh, Jim Belushi in the, you know, he, that he did agree to do that. Everyone can have it. And that's, you know, I think that it's a condemnation of who we are too, you know, in a way. Well, yeah. And I I think that's what makes the movie pretty dark. If you look at it in that lens, because to me, what this movie is about is sort of about greed, you know, like everybody who has like a horrible, painful consequence in this movie, it stems from their own greed, you know, like Mushnik is killed because he's being greedy and he wants Audrey all to himself. Uh, Steve Martin is like greedy about like inhaling tons of gas and just like all of his pleasure at all of his own costs. And that's what winds up with him dying. You know, Rick Moranis wanting like money Oh, he doesn't seem to want it too much. They don't let him want money as much as everybody else wants money, you know, but he likes money. And like, that is the thing that could have led to his own death in the way that this movie plays out. I mean, it's the idea of like wanting power. And when you have power, you know, was it absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. The only difference here is that (laughs) it it not only corrupts, it kills and, and even kills the person who wants power. It's not like Rick Moranis' character, you know, becomes like the king of this world. He, you know, it's, it's, he also falls victim to the power of it. Well, that's the thing. There's something about the victim that Rick Moranis plays this character as, because we never see that switch in him where he's like, I like this power. Here I go. No, like right. Even when he's being, you know, pursued and famous, he's literally getting like pushed around and thrown in in front of cameras. He's yes. never like, you don't get that shot that you see in most of these kind of like rags to riches movies where he's like, now I got my suit and I am happy. Like he's never happy. You know, Audrey even says, I wish this made you happy the way that it makes you. So I think because it isn't about him like going after power, to me, this movie becomes less about like a moral play about somebody who wants something and more about like an abuse of power, like a, a dynamic of power and submission, because I think he's submissive to Audrey. To Audrey, too. Right. You know, I think like everybody yes. in here well, is Audrey, in these like power and submissive relationships. Abusive relationships. I mean, abusive right? Abusive like, relationships. Yeah. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, that is really interesting here, too, because, you know, Ellen Green, who is fantastic, and I feel like I haven't spoken about her enough, like she's playing a very kind of fun, heightened character, and she is fantastic in it, but we meet her. And we're immediately connected to her because we see her as being abused, right? She comes in with a black eye. We see that she's with the wrong guy. And not only is it the wrong guy, like you said, Steve Martin is, there couldn't be more of the wrong guy, right? You know, he's beating her up for falling off his motorcycle. Um, So to kill that character is 
really, like I can only imagine audiences do not want to see that. Like they do not want to see the abused person be killed, you know, and, and the fact that she also sacrifices herself again for a man who is being abusive is another like element to it. It's like, oh, she, it like, what's worse to sacrifice yourself to this man who is nice to you or to be like hurt by the man who's trying to hurt you. It's, 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 it's a very different, I mean, I guess she has some control over it, you know, but it, it, it is also just a, not a, not something you want to see. It's not, it's not the, the, it's not a happy anything. No, it's super dark. And I think the reason that we let Seymour get off the hook as much as we do is because we see that he's also in like these kind of series of abusive relationships. Like we know that he's an orphan, that he was adopted by Mushnik when he was little and that Mushnik isn't nice to him, but at least he's, you know, alive and has a place to sleep, even if it's terrible. So he's in this power dynamic with Mushnik that's been like, abusive since he was really little you know yeah. he doesn't know a life outside of like being mushnik's little minion and he goes from there to having like a tiny little cute plant pet that he thinks is nice it starts small it's sweet he doesn't know what he's getting into and then audrey too also becomes like abusive and manipulative and like pretends to die just to ruin his life and will try anything i mean the way that audrey says like feed me different times trying to see what way he can manipulate him right here you get a sense of the fact that he's just gone from one unhealthy dynamic to another one Under no circumstances. Feed me. I will not, so stop asking. Feed me. No, no more. I can't keep living with the guilt. Tough titty. You watch your language. So you get sympathy for him, too. I mean, everybody in this movie is in, like, a screwed-up relationship like that. You know, I mean... This whole scene that we have with like Bill Murray going to the dentist, he's a person who loves to submit to the power of the dentist. Like this movie is kind of like BDSM in different ways about what it's saying about power and who who gives in. I mean, the tentacles, even the way that like Audrey moves are kind of they're very sexual sometimes. Well, here's what I'll say about this, too, that I think, again, it's the intent versus what we saw. And I think that in this weird way, the movie still is successful even though a lot of these choices were made that kind of undercut it. But there's a song um, that's severely truncated in the film, you know, in this big fantasy sequence. It's called The Meek Shall Inherit. And it's basically this idea that, you know, Seymour starts to realize that he's getting all this guilt. He's worried. He's like that he's getting fame and fortune only because of Audrey. Like, And, you know, and as people are trying to get him contracts and get him signed to things like that, he, you know, he fights with himself about, morality versus material gain. And at the end of the song, he metaphorically and actually signs over his soul to keep the success all for Audrey's love. And like, so to me, like he only believes that, you know, he's worthy of love if he is successful, right? Or if he is provide, you know, providing, like he doesn't even see it himself. I mean, it's, it's such a heavy, beautiful, idea that is again just truncated i think for the fun of it in the musical not frank oz didn't want that but that is that's a that's a crucial song in this like a crucial crucial song that you don't have and and it does what you were saying it dilutes this character because he becomes more of a tragic character if he knows the only the only reason why i'm doing this is because i still want love i still want to like i i am doing it because i 
not because I want fame and fortune. And I think the way that the movie wrestles with it is more the fame and fortune and not I am doing this because I want to be wanted. Yeah, like I think by taking away his deliberate choice and making it more of an accident, you make him easier to love. But you also, I think, take away from the tragedy of it. Yes. So, yeah, you can't you can't get rid of that song and then also have him get eaten. You know, you kind of right. have to like go for both, I think. I mean, and then there's that little trick that we even see within the musical where like there's the number that Audrey sings about, you know, loving him. And like being open into them, having like a matchbox of their own or like this idyllic fantasy life that she's singing about them maybe having someday in the suburbs. Uh, like the that sounds like heaven to them also sounds so kind of sad and pathetic so that they get it at the end doesn't feel like that happy of an ending either. A matchbox of our own A fence A thrilled chain link A quill out on the patio Dispose all in the sea, a washer and a dryer, and an ironing machine, and a tract house that we share somewhere that's green. I mean, to be singing lines about how you want to live in like a real chain length fence, you know, it just all of their options seem bad. But she sings this song to us in the camera before Rick Moranis has any idea that she likes him. So that makes it sad too, because he thinks he's doing it because Audrey too is winning him over. Like the Audrey too is kind of wingmanning him into yeah. having Audrey love him. But we know that that's absolutely beyond the point that like she already likes him and it's fine. I mean, and he doesn't need Audrey too to begin. By the way, parts of that like song, the, the matchbox of one's own. It reminded me a little bit of modern times. You know how they go into that fantasy world and they're in that like fantasy suburbia where oh, there's like yeah. the cow that's coming out of the back door and everything. Well, is I guess my thought is, you know, they don't have these things. So they're imagining these things. Like they're imagining the, you know, the Tupperware party, the things that they see on TV or the things that they see in film. And, you know, it's, it is just an escape, right? And if it's an escape with him or like, I don't even know if that relationship between the two of them is, is based in anything more than just, it would be better to like, I want to escape with you. Do they really love each other? Are they really connected to each other? I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, that's always a dilemma that you can kind of have. I don't, I think, but I think that's a little bit intentional. It's like, it's, it's just, I don't want to be alone I don't want to be with this person. I want to go somewhere and it will be good because I'm just not with the thing that I am in right now. This abusive man who like makes me work in a store and I only get off every other Sunday or this man who like is an insane dentist. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't even, I don't even know if I buy the love story more than, I mean, I buy it cause I think they play it well, but I don't think that they understand even what it is. And I think that song illustrates that they, she just is saying these things that she thinks are going to make her life better. The Tupperware parties, we're going to watch. I love Lucy. We're going to have kids that look like, you know, it's like, it's these things will make us better. These material things will make us better. Yeah, you're right. I think at that point in that song, in that dream, she is just sort of clinging to anybody. Right. I think you're right. I think like, I think there's a shift in her though. Like when they do the Suddenly Seymour song, you hear the shift. I mean, up until this point, like, you know, Ellen's been talking in this kind of cute little squeaky voice. I mean, you could, it's not too far away from how her normal voice is. Like this is her actually giving an interview, you know, like talking about preparing to do the Suddenly Seymour number. That said, 
suddenly Seymour? The grass was growing through cement. It was as romantic as it looked on screen. Mm. It felt. It was huge. It was on the 007 set. And yeah. the, Frank knew I had a dog named Snuffy, this Cocker Spaniel who was black and white. And he created, had them build a stuffed animal for me to hold as Audrey. So it's like a heightened cute voice, but it is also, you know, sort of hers. The fact that Ellen Green can really, 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 really sing, you don't hear that until the suddenly Seymour number. And that's mm. where I think she falls in love with him. And that's where when you hear her voice change in that song, her go from like light and feathery to like passionate. I think that I think that is an example of a musical using the way the song itself is sung to tell you about the emotion in that person. This feeling lasts till forever. Tell me the bad times are clean washed away. Please understand that it's still strange and frightening for losers like I've been. It's so hard to say. Suddenly, Seymour. Suddenly, Seymour. that you know because it, it goes beyond lyrics it goes just straight into performance the performance of emotion inside of a song friday kingdom of the planet of the apes is coming to imax and theaters everywhere This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Let's talk about performance because I think this movie is wonderfully cast. And like I said to you, the thing that I used to watch in this film was my favorite actors. And and before there was the internet, I know I'm dating myself a lot, but before there was any of that stuff, you would hear these rumors. Like, I heard that all of Bill Murray's scene is completely improvised. And that's totally him just off the cuff. And turns out it was very much just an ad lib scene because I think the idea was you're supposed to see the dentist be really brutal, like with a patient and, and all that kind of changes. And Bill Murray adds this, uh, it's a great like flavor in the movie. Um, but, you know, Frank Oz calls in all these heavy hitters and everybody from John Candy as the radio DJ, like they all are fun and big in all the best ways. It needs to be, the comedy needs to be embraced because if you don't embrace the comedy, then it's a straight up tragedy. And if it's straight up tragedy, it's no fun, right? And this movie, in this movie, this musical is really fun. So I just... All that to say, I need to ask your opinion on this Greg Berlanti remake that has been tossed around for a while. Have you heard the cast of this? Tell me. Okay. I mean, here's what I'll say. I just want to say uh, nothing against these actors. Like, it, 
and other things, great. It was a surprising choice. This is not about these people's actors. It's about these people in these roles. Taryn Egerton as Seymour. Scarlett Johansson as Audrey. Chris Evans as the dentist. And the only one I really, really like is Billy Porter as Audrey, too. Um, That is the rumored cast of Little Shop of Horrors. And just, I'm like, oh, what is that movie? Like, I don't see that movie. But maybe I've, I've been so much in this movie. But, I mean, do you see that movie? Oh. They're all I great. Mean, I all love, great actors. They are. I love Taron Egerton in, like, the Elton John movie. Still, like, underappreciated, yeah. brilliant movie. I would kind of want to see him play the dentist. And I would love the, to see that, yeah. And maybe Anthony Ramos from In the Heights plays Seymour. Oh, that'd be fun. I think he would be good at it. And I don't see Scarlett Johansson as Audrey. I feel like it's interesting. It's just, I mean, again, we haven't seen anything, but I feel like this premise and the reason why this movie is really interesting, and I think the reason why Frank Oz made this choice to put like every big comedic actor he could get in the movie, because originally it was, I think, John Candy was going to be the dentist. And he's like, I want a smaller part. By the way, John Candy, every time I read about John Candy, I just love the little details. Like, you know, they wanted John Candy to be the Rick Moranis part in Ghostbusters. And he was like, well, I see my character with two giant Doberman pinchers. And they're like, well, no, you can't have two giant Doberman pinchers. Like, your character's supposed to be like this nerd you know, he's an insurance salesman, like, no. And he's like, I won't do it. And, uh, you know, in this, they're like, be the dentist. Like, mm, is there anything smaller? And they're like, uh, well, be the radio guy. He's like, okay, great. And just an interesting actor. And I feel like the more I find out about him, a very sad guy as well. But, uh, but this movie is full of comedic performances. And I think it makes, uh, I don't know. I think Frank Oz was smart about that. When you look at the Broadway revival of it, it feels much more like the Frank Oz version of it. it like they are dressed the same. The characters are the same. It's, it is tonally, I feel like Frank Oz has set the tone. And when I see this, I'm like, oh, well, maybe Greg Berlanti is like going to set a very different tone. But it's an odd one because if it works, I don't know. I mean, this, this is already coming off of a Broadway musical, an off-Broadway musical, uh, that was working, that I think Frank Oz drafted off of, obviously, with uh, Ellen Green. And then, you know, and then obviously it came back as a revival and that drafted off of Frank Oz. And now to take a completely different direction seems odd. And am I fighting to be the dentist? Maybe. I don't know. But no. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I guess I don't know. I just when I looked at it, I was so excited. I was like, oh, I like Greg Berlanti. I'll, I'll see what this is. And I was like, oh, huh. And it's still going to be a musical. I mean, I think you should be the dentist's patient. I think you should take the Bill Murray role because then you'll okay, be living yeah, I'll t- oh, I'd love that. in the grand line <laughs> of Jack Nicholson. I mean, in the Corman version, it's Jack Nicholson's third movie and he's playing the twisted guy at the yes. dentist. You have to hear this. You know, most people don't like to go to the dentist, but I rather enjoy it myself, don't you? <laughs> I mean, there's such, there's a real feeling of growth, of of. <laughs> progress when that, that old drill goes in. I mean, I'd almost rather go to the dentist than anywhere, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> now, no Novocaine. It dulls the senses. <laughs> this is gonna hurt you more than it is me. Oh, goody, goody, here it comes. It's so funny you play that because when I worked at Blockbuster, 
I was a big Jack Nicholson fan, and I would just fast forward that Roger Corman version to see that sequence. <laughs> I mean, but I want to say something, though, about like the John Candy of it that you were just talking about. You know, when John Candy shows up as the radio guy, what he does in that scene is really small, right? He hosts mm-hmm. this show. We have these like kind of tiny visual jokes that there's just a lot of weird stuff happening. Like you see that pan down the line of everybody else who's waiting to be interviewed by John Candy. It's like the guy with the marionette. It's like the old lady holding a box that's covered in like heavy chains and locks. And you're like, what is in the box? And the movie will never, ever, ever, ever right. tell you. And then it goes into John Candy in the radio station. And what he does, I think, is a tribute to audio, you know, like. He does a little bit where he plays out an entire story just using his voice as like different characters. You see like a whole story taking place in front of his head through just him on a microphone. Hi, everybody. It's weird. Wink Wilkinson laughing and scratching at you. How's everybody doing today? I got a little bit of a stiff neck. Let me just fix this up. Oh, that feels a lot better. Well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. What are you doing here? What? You Please, lady, don't. Put your clothes back on. It's Wink. Well, you can't do this to me. What if your husband were to walk in? I'm right here, Wink. I'm sorry. I love your show, but I've got to kill you both with this machine gun. Oh, you got me. Oh, 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 oh. I feel, I feel so very weak. <laughs> okay, our first guest today is young man. You probably read about the news. And I love that, you know, because here we are talking about like taking a musical from the stage to the screen and everything that you have to do visually to like make it have that kind of visual energy that can maintain throughout a whole film. And then Frank Oz just stops for 30 seconds in the middle of the film. And he's like, you know, audio and voices can tell stories all on their own. And he just like lets Candy go, lets him have this little riff about about the power of vocal cords to tell an entire image. And it's just this little button right in the tiny of the right in the middle of the movie that I love so much. Like he's having fun here using this musical to like talk about the conventions of making movies and music and how it's not all about stuff like who's got the best dancing and who's the best singer. I mean, some of the best musical moments in this whole film are not even actual singing. Like when Steve Martin is in The Dentist and like his co-star in that song number is just a guy like gargling on his own water. Say ah. Say ah. Say ah. Now spit. I mean, compare this to something like Chicago where like Chicago just had all the pressure of like, no, we're really singing, man. No, we're really dancing, man. Everything is perfect. Every spangle is in place. Like this is a movie where the spangles are all over the place. And I think that is why I love it so much. I mean, there's this like tension in the movie from the beginning between like you're in this world where everything is grimy and colorful at the same time. Like it's grimy and colorful. Like there's this tension just in the city when you're looking through like these early shots it's like to have images that are beautiful and ugly simultaneously like nobody does that very well like tim burton well, does it in batman i was gonna i have an, i have a, i have a director do it that i think actually captures a lot of what's going on here go ahead and that yeah do you okay, i don't want to cut you off but there's one that i feel like you might be missing that i feel like has a very strong connection go ahead coen brothers Where's the grime? Raising Arizona? Where's the grime? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of grime. I mean, on the motor, like like Raising Arizona and like in this okay, coming out, like I feel like, I don't know. I feel like there's grime. I feel like there's, I mean, I feel like there's a, 
a sensibility that is similar, especially if it's the original Frank Oz ending. Not to say this is a Coen Brothers film, but it is comedic performances grounded in a reality that is true to whatever we're seeing. Like, you know, um, but also at the same time, uh, there are some like ultimate truths. Not that this is like no country for old men, you know, but it does have the same idea. Like Seymour, this plant needs to eat. It needs to eat. And if it doesn't eat, you know, it's going to find its way and it's going to keep on coming and coming, and coming. Like, I think that there's something about, I don't know. I was thinking about the Coen brothers in this. I was like, it's, it's such a tone and it's not exactly, exactly the same, but Raising Arizona comes out in 87 and I feel like it feels at least like this heightened, bigger world and characters like this that, I don't know, that work. It was something that really, and I get the Tim Burton of it all. I guess like Tim Burton is grimier, but Tim Burton doesn't have any of the other stuff that this movie has that the Coen brothers has. You know, Tim Burton has that, like that look that like, not noir, but like that darker look. But this also has like the, the color palette of this is brighter in points too. You know, it's, it's maybe dulled, but it's not like, it's not like a Tim Burton movie. I feel like Tim Burton movies are almost like black and white and blue. I think it like I think it transitions depending on what's happening. But like right. this is a movie that starts with, you know, a cute piano playing and then like an empty liquor bottle getting thrown in a mud puddle, you know, in trash everywhere. Right. An ugly cat. Like ugly I didn't mean ugly cats. I just meant cats. Cats that are screaming. All cats are beautiful. You know, drizzling huh. rain. Like it it tries to see how far it can push ugliness. You know, uh, and well, I think I mean, that's yeah. really interesting about it. I'm like but don't song? you think it's for comedic effect? I mean, because the same way that you would look at, like, you know, uh, Nicolas Cage's character, like, you know, just the way he is, like, you know, that, that 7-Eleven and the way that the way live in, like, I mean, I guess there's a beauty in their trailer park lifestyle, but it's also not like a, it's not like um, an ideal, like the most idealized version is them sitting in those lawn chairs looking out at the sunset, you know, but then, you know, uh, there is something I mean, it's not like black grimy, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I think that I want to find grime song, in it. I think that Hudsucker first Proxy song grime? is really grimy. Okay. You know, Hudsucker Proxy has a lot of grime. It's got grime. Yeah, sure. But like what I want to, I want to talk about the downtown number though, because okay. I feel like everybody Martin Fink skips, has grime. I feel like everybody skips over the downtown song when they talk about this. You know, you go straight yes. to like suddenly Seymour, but the downtown number that this opens with is I think like really sad and super grimy. You know, you have like the percussion in that scene, like coming from like people going down the stairs from the subway, you know, you have like, but isn't that opening number as unrealistic as the suburb song? It's these heightened versions of these worlds that are neither totally true nor totally false. It's just sort of like, it's the idealized version. And then I say idealized with Skid Row. It's like, it's the version that we think of, you know, it's the way that the, the streets would look and the people would look. And not to say the Skid Row is not that, but at that point, it feels like much more of a, here's your fear of what it is. And we're going to give you that. Here's your f- idea of what suburbia is. And we're going to give you that. I mean, there's some of that. Like, I think when the people of Skid Row start climbing the fence, like they're zombies, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, like that, they look like a zombie horde. Like that's definitely horrific. But I think that like. I think that there's a level of like sadness that this movie begins in that is easily to easy to forget when this is a movie that we think of as kind of like the greatest hits of songs. And I just want to like pay some respect to that sadness. I think the faces of the people you see in that number, you know, like the businessmen and stuff, they don't look like the people you usually see in musicals. And I think that's interesting. Right. Nobody has that look of like, I'm a background dancer. 
Yeah, they all look like right, like and actual it's also people smaller. bursting into song. And I think that that's really cool. I, well, I, I agree with you. And I, going back to the Bobby Brown uh, video, you know, you never know who you're going to get to dance to Bobby Brown. But I, I also think that what is really impressive about that is when we talk about West Side Story, and we talked about that a while ago, like that version of what the, that was, was a very clean version of that, right? Like that wasn't really realistic. It was kind of the Broadway version of that. This is kind of the, I think, almost playing it up in a different way now. Um, and I like that the cast is smaller because you actually get to see the faces of these people. Like there's, it's not, and this goes back to my point about it being more a Broadway, it's more theatrically designed. It's like the cast is smaller than a movie. Like even when they do that montage of buying, you see all those three people exit the store. Like, I think you get to embrace or live in that world. Like that opening number is a big musical number. And I love it. I, I agree with you. It's a great tone setter. And it, and it almost says to you, if you think this is unbelievable, then you don't live downtown because in downtown, anything it, shit goes on here that you don't know. And if you're even in this theater, you wouldn't even know because you couldn't even afford to be here. Right. It's like this idea. Like, I think there's an element of that saying like, it's a buy-in for the whole movie. This is a world that you can't even fathom. Well, I think yeah. it does a great and job. Like, yeah. I mean, now I'm thinking of a movie like Soho, you know, that just came out, which kind of like uses the Petula Clark version of downtown. Like mm-hmm. usually we sing songs about downtown as like an exciting place. Like, don't you right. want to go downtown? In this movie feels like it's directly talking to the Petula Clark version. Like this is our downtown. Right. Like, our this downtown is the downtown isn't pretty. That we're thinking of. Yeah. Don't like us. Don't don't like pity us. It's actually gr- like it's like it's like you like your downtown may be that, but our downtown is this. Yeah. And, and I like, like the yeah. way that it's staged that you have like. You know, Rick Moranis and and Ellen Green singing their kind of versions of it separately and not knowing that the other person feels that way, the way that Frank Oz, Oz stages it, that they're like leaning on opposite sides of a building corner and they don't see that they're harmonizing to that. the same song. Like, that's beautiful. Again, but I kind very of, theatrical. Yeah, but I want to give like a shout out to the woman who starts off that song, you know, who you hear right here when the song starts. Then you go downtown. That's a singer. Her name is Bertice Redding. Um, And she has a connection that goes all the way back to like one of our very first episodes. So you remember we did Swing Time. Mm -hmm. And in Swing Time, Fred Astaire has the very uncomfortable and awkward blackface number that is his tribute to the dancer Bill Robinson, you know, known as like mm-hmm. Mr. Bill yes. Jangles. Bill Robinson is the guy who discovered that woman who sings this song, who discovered Bertice Reddin. He discovered her when she was like five years old in 1938. And he took her out of a dancing class and they like went on the road together. And so that woman singing this song is like this prestigious, like great singer, famous, like theatrical actress with a connection all the way back to like 
all the way back to like the dawn of the movie musical. And I just love that. I love that she's in here. I don't think you cast Bertice Redding unless you are a person making a musical who really just loves musicals. Like that's such a deep callback. You know, it makes right. me think of the way that like Grease was made or like the actors populating it where you have, you know, Joan Blondell in that movie. You don't cast Joan Blondell in that movie unless you deeply love the origins of the genre that you're talking about. And so I just love seeing those little notes where you know that the people who made this musical like love musicals and are finding the best people to be in their musical and not just being like, Zac Efron's free, he can do it. That is no diss on Zac Efron, who I think is amazing, but to show your creds, well, I guess, to show your street cred in the musical world. I think well, it's I mean, important. That's that's why Ellen Green is in this movie, right? Because they they wanted like Cindy Lauper to play that part. And Frank Oz really wanted to get Ellen in there, he saw her in the play and was like, I want her and screen tested her. And it was undeniable. Um, And that's the choice of someone who understands, in my opinion, casting. Not that Cyndi Lauper wouldn't have done a great job. I mean, I love Cyndi Lauper. I love her her too. But it's respect of the musical, right? It's The reason why this movie tested so badly, or one of the reasons, is because people loved her. And I think you walk away probably the most sympathetic to her. And so I think there's something really cool about that. I don't know. Um, I, I just think you're right. Like there's a lot of little nods across the board. Well, yeah, totally. I mean, I think that they really had to push to make sure that they got to do this movie the way they needed to. You know, one of the stories too, is that like the studio asked Howard Ashman if he would rewrite Suddenly Seymour and if he would change it from Suddenly Seymour to Suddenly Someone. Because they thought a song called Suddenly Someone would have a much bigger chance of being a radio hit. And he was like, absolutely not. It is Suddenly Seymour. And that is what this is going to be. And he didn't totally have the clout to do that yet. Like, he would. I mean, this is the movie that, you know, basically is responsible, I would say, also for the modern musical. In that, like, like, Disney sees this and they're like, wow, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, they hired Ashman to write their first musical that they were going to do was going to bring back the musical Little Mermaid. Howard Ashman was hired first and he was like, you got to bring Mencken with me. And then they do Beauty and the Beast. And then of course Ashman dies. And then like Mencken goes on to do like everything else. Like we wouldn't have musicals, I think, in this generation as much if not for Howard Ashman. And you wouldn't have Howard Ashman on the radar if it weren't for, you know, this movie. Yeah. Or for this play in this movie. So like, yeah, I think there's just like a complete direct line from from Little Shop of Horrors well, to Zac Efron, I guess. Disney wouldn't have made High School Musical if they hadn't had so much success with musicals. Right. So, so we have Zac Efron because of this movie. <laughs> but you know what? I But I think that you're right about that. Like they're like, but that's OK. Like that. This is a I think we've even though we've left a lot on the table in the musical department, we've covered a lot of types of musicals. And this is very different than other types of musicals. And I do think you're right. This, um, and I know there's some talk about on Discord about like the campy nature of musical and all that sort of stuff. I Yes, I think that this is something that really, you know, Grease definitely does, but I think Grease does like a little mixed bag of it. Like I think Grease does like embraces like the Broadway the- theatricality, but also kind of grounds it in the real world. This is like really... This is letting you, I think, live in a world that's more like High School Musical than others. And I'm sure there's a million other examples and I'm not as well versed to just be able to list them off the top of my head. But I do agree. Like, yeah, this is a very this is a very important film in that in that regard. But I wonder what it says that it, too, has to be a period piece. You know, like we're told even at the beginning by the narrator that this is like a movie that doesn't take place in the present day. So I still feel like there's something in 
audiences not being willing to go with a musical set in the present day, unless you're, you know, you have to set it into the past, which we can kind of heighten and have be more colorful and have people be wearing this kind of outfit and not have to look like realistic outfits like you would see on the street. There's something that still depresses me about that, that we can't just do a musical in today's clothes, in today's time without people like having a harder time buying into it. Yeah, I mean, well, I think sometimes when you put things in the past, you're allowed or you put things in a world in which you don't readily identify. It takes away all those. Well, why didn't they and who shouldn't they have just, you know, it's like it's now like the idea of not having a cell phone. It, it just like it, it takes away questions that will keep you from enjoying the movie. This is not meant to be verite, right? Like and I think that that's fine. Um, you know, it's. It's meant to be this fun Greek tragedy, like this this metaphor, but it told in a way that like, I think that those choices sometimes just get you enough out of your head that you can just enjoy the film. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess also by setting in the 60s, you get to add in all those, you know, nods or kind of like inside jokes or like song lyrics about like, oh, you want to date Hedy Lamar or, you know, right. naming like the girls in the chorus after like bands of the time or really like getting to cast to me, like maybe the best performer in the whole movie. Which is Levi Stubbs as the voice of Audrey too. Like, I just think yes. he's incredible. You know, Levi Stubbs, of course, himself, like huge, huge, huge songwriting star. I mean, with the four tops, like here's just like a quick montage of some of his like straight up bangers. phenomenal in this like he puts so much personality and expression into Audrey too like this movie works because that plant is so good right like what if the plant was kind of weaker not as interesting not as like manipulative not yeah, as, like, what is the voice funny? of that right and, and it's like we know that voice because it's part of our culture but like that must have been shocking to hear like you like whoa, at how perfectly cast, especially because we were hearing it as Audrey the entire time. We don't, I don't think of it as male, but it was very hard for me to watch this movie without that voice in my head. But to hear that for the first time must have been like, whoa, wait a second. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Like he did not go on to do that much work. Like after this in the movies, I think he did like one other thing. Like he really just committed to the four tops. That's the sweet thing about Levi Stubbs. You know, like a lot of the other groups of this era, they would take the lead singer kind of out, you know, be like Smokey Robinson and... Yeah, but Levi Stubbs always refused to do that. He was like, I'm one of the four tops. Like he just stayed a four top and didn't go solo ever, even though they really tried to make him do it. Like, and he didn't really get into like the movie business that much. Like the most movie he ever got was basically when his song here, A Mean Green Mother from Outer Space got nominated for an Oscar for best original song. And he performed it live at the Oscars, which was awesome. And they had like a whole singing giant Audrey two in the background as he's like singing and dancing in this like purple sequin suit. Amazing. He did not win. That was a really rough year. He was up against like nothing but straight bangers. He was up against like 
Glory of Love from Karate Kid 2 and Somewhere Out There from, from uh, American Tale. And the winner was Take My Breath Away from Top Gun. I mean, wow. that was a year, man. That was like a serious year. But like, you just get all of that personality out of Audrey because of how he vocalizes her. You just, you hear it all. Like Audrey is like an actual character because he is so good. I totally agree. And, and, and for a very small performance, again, it's legendary. It's iconic. It's as iconic as Darth Vader. I think, uh, I mean, not the character, but that voice, like immediately like pulls you in. And I think that's a very hard thing to do to make such a lasting impression in such a small uh, bit of space. Um, and all of a sudden, that voice not only gives truly a voice to a character, but it also gives you so much backstory. You get like, oh, wow, I know who this character is, the way it speaks, the way it like, this is an evil plan. This person is evil. This person's got to, you know, it, it, he feels like a mad scientist. Like, <laughs> I can finally reveal my plan, like a, like a Bond villain or something like that. It, it's great. You know, I never thought about this, but now I feel like you can really see a direct through line between Audrey two and little mermaid Ursula that like poor unfortunate souls number, like another monster that's like the villain, really big voiced. It has all these like tentacles wobbling everywhere, kind of like reaching out and grabbing things. There's a look to Ursula that I think is really similar to this. Oh, yeah. Huh. The, I, do, I also like that moment where they're kind of fighting with the musical genres of the era where, you know, there's a song where like Audrey and Audrey 2 is like battling with uh, Seymour over, you know, what he's going to do. Like, are you going to feed me? Blah, 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 blah. And they're going back and forth. And the song is itself kind of a battle between like two forms of music. Like Seymour is singing in more of like a softer 1960s balladeer doo-wop style. Right. But, but he's battling almost the future of music. Like Audrey's singing in more of like a rock song kind of style with like really heavy like bass. And you know from the grid of that song that like the future will win out. So I just think that's another neat way of like using music to tell the story beyond even the lyrics. I totally agree. And it's amazing that, you know, this movie... When it comes out, though, doesn't really work. And I mean, we've talked about this a lot. A lot of the films that we talk about on the show don't work uh, when they come out. But can we talk a little bit about what the critics said about it? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is most of the critics kind of liked it. Like oh, nobody came out and wrote a straight up pan. Most of them gave it that sort of review that's like, I really liked it. I feel like a little bad that I liked it. And I'm going to try to point out some negative things, I guess. But you can tell that I don't really mean them because... My heart says, go watch this movie. You know, so I'm going to read the negative bits, but all of these negative lines I'm going to read are in this context of a giant review that was basically like, go see it. This movie is super fun. So like Variety called it a fractured, funny production transported rather reluctantly from the stage to the screen. Time said, you can try not liking this adaptation. It has no polish and it has a pushy way with a gag, but the movie sneaks up on you. Uh, the New York Times said, you know, it's not uniformly inter entertaining, nor is its score always entirely audible. The musical dubbing is a little awkward, but its best moments are delightful enough to make the slow stretches unimportant. Um, and then the Washington Post, you know, 
listed like a gazillion reasons why they thought it wasn't that great. But honestly, then just about faced at the end anyway. They were like, dentist jokes aren't exactly new stuff. Uh, it's the borscht belt with a modern spin. Many of the quips and song lyrics work both as jokes and as a parody of those jokes, which I think is very true. Um, they say that, you know, Oz treats his central characters like cameo players, which makes them also suffer in comparison with the actual cameos in the movie, which then like overtake them. Uh, and he said that its worst flaw is it's like spectacular finale, which was shot after the movie was finished and looks reshot. It's over before it starts. It's a dud, but... The pleasures of Little Shop carry you past its dull stretches. You enjoy its quick-witted wordplay, inventive sketch comedy, and the Broadway-influenced and the Broadway and Motown-influenced music. And most of all, you enjoy watching a story told through song. The Hollywood musical, with its glitz and sass, is reborn. So this is again like Chicago, another example of somebody saying this musical will save the musical again. Like, it feels like almost all of the reviews about musicals are basically like, thank you for saving the musical. Please save the musical. Yeah. And and I think it's also, I mean, a very New York musical. And I don't know how to also deconstruct that even more. It's like it, the way that the characters are, it does feel to me, or I guess I say a very city musical, right? It has a very interesting point of view. It's not the way the voices are, the way the characters are. It is not trying to be everything to all people like that terrible idea to change, you know, uh, suddenly someone, you know, from suddenly Seymour. Like it is their caricatures at a certain point. And I think that that's okay too. But I, I just, I was thinking about that too. Like, I wonder if that maybe set people off. I wonder, I wonder. I mean, what you don't read is what I think you would read almost exclusively today if this is like a brand new thing, which is like, women getting beaten up isn't funny. Right, right, and yeah. nobody commented on that now. And I, I, no, I think that it would be the only thing people would sort of wrestle with in their reviews. So I think that's just an interesting about face that we've made as a culture. Absolutely. And I, but I don't know if it's played for laughs, though. I mean, I guess Steve Martin's character plays, like that one sequence he plays for laughs. But the rest is kind of treated very seriously. Yeah, I mean, it's always known that him beating up is wrong and everybody agrees that it's terrible and there's no debate. And I mean, I guess the most laughs sort of played within that is when she rhymes like semi-sadist with whatever she rhymes it with. Right. Yeah. But she's a lovable character. She's like, sweet, you want to protect her. And that's why, you know, maybe one of the things I think pops out about them changing the ending is there's that line when Seymour is battling Audrey two towards the end. And he says to him, you know, you're not going to wait. You're not going to get away with this. Your kind never does. And I was like, Oh man, I feel like in reality, the bullies often win, you know? And so there was something in that line where I was like, don't, doesn't that kind often win? Doesn't they, don't they often win? But I guess they do often win in reality. They just don't often win in the movies. And right. so, and so that line almost feels like kind of vestigial, like, yeah, his kind actually does win in this movie. But then we weren't ready to take that, so we couldn't do it. <laughs> well, Amy, I mean, this has been a really fun series. And like we said, we've left a lot on the table. I can't wait to get back into more musicals. We can find different ways to view them and and talk about them. Um, and kind of as a treat, as we go into this final couple of weeks of the year, we're going to do a new series called stocking stuffers and stocking stuffers is kind of like a 
a hodgepodge of fun things that we want to do before the holidays because we feel like we were going to try to rush uh, a little bit of a mini series, but we want to start fresh in the new year. And uh, you want to give people a little bit of the overview of what we're going to be kind of doing in stocking stuffers? I mean, we're just having fun, man. We're just having fun. So we're going to do some Christmas movies. We're going to do a big blockbuster movie uh, and uh, and some surprises. Well, then let's start with a Christmas titan that I think we have to talk about. We just got to at this point. It is considered the modern Christmas movie. It is unescapable in any kind of way during Christmas. And it is actually Love Actually. I cannot wait to talk about this movie because... This is an interesting, well, we'll get into it. I, I don't, I'll leave it at that. We have a whole episode to get into why it's an interesting pick. I'm excited for stocking stuffers and uh, I'm sad to close the door on musicals, but Love Actually has a lot of DNA with some musical in there too. So I feel like there's a lot of musical elements that we can take with us. Uh, excited to talk to you about Love Actually and we'll see you next week. Throughout the years, working title films and writer Richard Curtis have captured the euphoria, hysteria, and humiliation of love with the films Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, and Bridget Jones's Diary. This holiday season, join this unforgettable filmmaking team. Welcome, Prime Minister. This is Natalie. Hello, David. I mean, sir. 20 years ago, you'd have been just his time. (laughs) (laughs) As they explore that time of year, when desires are revealed. I'm in love. Aren't you that young to be in love? No. Oh, okay. Secrets are exposed. Your secretary is very pretty. Be careful, then. And chances are finally taken. All I want for Christmas is you. (laughs) Universal Pictures invites you. What's the best sex you've ever had? Britney Spears. No, only kidding. (laughs) She was rubbish. To take everything you know about love. You have this kind of problem? Yeah, of course you did, you saucy mings. And multiply it by eight. you excuse me for one second? Okay, that's done. This will be Hugh Grant, Liam Neeson, Colin Firth, Laura Linney, Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, Rowan Atkinson, Kira Knightley. Christmas is the time to be with the people you love. Yeah, I need a car. This holiday season. Uh, does Natalie live here? All you need. Oh. Hello. Is love actually? Are you seeing carols? Uh, I suppose I could. Please, sir, Good King Winceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen. When the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. 
Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxel for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Thank you.